0: Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons, or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Let's open our Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. We're in this series called uh, King Jesus Christmas, and last week we talked about Jesus, our gospel. And the points that we made from the first eight verses and then the 28th and 29th verse of this particular chapter is that there is joy, power, and grace in the gospel. But the gospel isn't a story about a man. The gospel is the man. It's not a mythology or a system of moral teachings, but it's in who Jesus Christ is. So he's not just the story of the gospel, Jesus is our gospel, And Paul's going to take us, beginning in verse 9 through 17, he's going to take us through another passage where he establishes the kingship of Jesus. There was a brand new department or a DEA agent, Drug Enforcement Administration, who was traveling around doing spot visits on particular farms and ranches. And he came upon this one in New Mexico, and he saw the rancher, and he said, I'm here to inspect your property to make sure that there are no drugs being grown here organically or intentionally that might be turned into illegal drugs. And the rancher stopped and said, well, it's fine by me. You won't find anything, but don't go in the south pasture. And the DEA agent, who was brand new, was a little bit uppity, and he said, sir, I have the authority of the federal government behind me. And he reached in his pocket, and he pulled out his badge and said, do you see this? This tells you I can go anywhere I want, whenever I want, for whatever reason I want. And the rancher said, "Whatever." And he turned around and went back to his work. And about ten minutes later, after he was working for a little bit, he heard a scream. And he looked, and across the south pasture was the DEA agent running for his life, followed by the biggest bull on the ranch. And the the farmer began to measure that the bull was gaining, and the and the agent wasn't going to make it to safety before something uh, happened. And so the farmer dropped his tools and he ran over to the gate and, and he yelled these words. Show him your badge! <laughs> authority. We don't like it. And yet this passage is all about authority. It begins with the prayer. And actually we're going to work backwards. I'll show you that in just a moment. But we're going to work backwards through this text. And I want to read it and then show you that it's about two main paragraphs. Let's read it. Paul says, For this reason... Alluding back to what we talked about the gospel last week. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. That's one sentence full of incredible information about our journey. Verse 13. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether throne or power or ruler or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Two paragraphs, each with a distinction. The first paragraph tells us what the kingship of Christ is. The second paragraph tells us what the, what the kingdom of Christ could be. One tells us the reality, and the other tells us the implications if we make that our reality. It's a real simple proposition Paul puts out here. He's telling us that he is king over all things, but is he our king? That he is the one who put this all together, but is he the one that holds us together. It's a fascinating proposition he puts out here. What I want to do today is begin with this concept of King Jesus universal. For many of us, the concept of a king is old fashioned. Uh, you know, I ha- had the opportunity to travel in the United Kingdoms, and you know, one of the questions Americans ask, and anytime you would ask the question, they would roll their eyes. We're not the first Americans to ask, What is with the Queen? And over there they explain that it's a a token position that goes back to their heritage and everything. But we in America, we have snide remarks. We make our little smirks and we say, nice, nice queen, nice future king. But we don't believe in that. Yet I'm here to tell you today that if you walk out of here without a king, you're a mess. Because we need a king. And our king was sent to us in the form of a little baby. But as much as I love Christmas is about the poetic beauty of a baby, we've got to let him grow up. And when he grows up, he came for no other reason but to be king, not just to be a wonderful statement that gives us a beautiful holiday and warm, uh, warm holiday feelings. So let's talk about the universality of the king. Verse 16 and 17. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or power or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I'd like to jump back between verses 16 and 17 by beginning in verse 17, for he is before all things. Now, do you know that most world religions, some that have preceded us and some that are currently in existence today, believe that God really isn't a person, that God isn't, doesn't have that ability to be and beyond, that he is the world, he is earth he's climate he's trees he's rocks he's oceans that we all live and exist in this world and the world really is god and he's not a personal god but he's this material essence that that is is in all of these things and that's not the first time that's ever been promoted do you know your bible tells you different your bible says that he is he existed before the world he exists apart from the world and he is transcendent over the world and that's the kind of god i need I don't need a God that's a tree or a rock or an inanimate object or a feeling. I need a God who's powerful and has authority and uses that authority for my protection. I don't know how many of you remember this. I know I'm gonna date myself, but there was a television show uh, that existed in the 1980s called Saint Elsewhere. Please, someone shake your head and say you might have seen it. Thank you. All the young people on our creative arts team are like, yeah, I had no idea. Okay, so there was this show And it was about a hospital, and it was was a very interesting show. It was dramatic, and it had comedic uh, efforts, and a lot of stars began it. But anyway, the whole premise was this show had one of the worst endings to any show ever created, in that the way it ended was St. Elsewhere wasn't a reality. It was just in the mind of an autistic boy, and it was held inside a snow globe. And in the last scene, they pulled back, and the hospital was inside this snow globe held by the autistic son of one of the doctors. And when the show ended, we all went, what? And I'm here to tell you today that I don't want my life to end that way. And I'm not believing in something because I don't want it to end that way. I'm not believing in it because it's not real. That God is not this inanimate object that just is out there, but he is a personal God. He is before the world. Notice that. He is before all things. That there is nothing that existed before God. He wasn't created, but he was there for us. And Jesus was with him. So he's before all things. And then it says in verse 16, for by him all things were created, that he brought this all into existence, that we are indebted to him. I think about this every time I walk out on this stage and you give me the privilege of teaching. When I walk out on the stage, I remember that what we're doing is adding on and we're providing to this generation what a previous generation sacrificed at great cost to allow us to have. That we're here because another generation, as we say around here, they planted a tree and we sit in the shade of that tree. But what will we plant for future generations? There's something bigger than this and we're indebted to it. And when I look at the world, it's not mine. This life isn't mine and what I have isn't mine. It all belongs to the one I'm indebted to, who created it all and gave it to me. Back to verse 17. In him, all things hold together. And I want to focus more on that this morning than the previous two comments. Held together together by him let me try to explain now i'm going to tell you this would be probably a 30 week class at any university and i'm silly enough to try to do it in about five minutes so please let me introduce you to the concept i won't be able to exhaust it what does it mean when it says that in jesus all things are held together as creator god there is an order to this world The skeptics will say, no, there's no order to this world. How could we have hurricanes and tornadoes and tidal waves and blizzards and all of this thing if there wasn't order? And I'm here to tell you that in spite of those what appear to be anomalies, they're not actually anomalies because we know that when you take certain atmospheric conditions, you can predict that a tornado is likely. Nod your head if you understand what I'm saying there. That's why they say there's a tornado watch. Watch. S- the situation is arising based on these conditions we know from the past that a tornado could happen. Then they go from a watch to a warning, which says now it has in- intensified that there are better conditions now than there were previous, and we can predict those. We can predict snow and ice. I know it's easy to take a shot at weathermen and say, they're not, no, their predictions are getting more and more accurate because we have more and more information, and there is an order to even those things. Let me simplify it. If I handed you a two-pound rock... Now, first hour looked at me like this was a trick question. If I handed you a two-pound rock today, how much would that rock weigh in 10 years? Class? Oh, my goodness. Mumbles. Let's try that again. How much would a two-pound rock weigh in 10 years? Two pounds. Thank you. Why? Because we know through time and testing the order of this world that the density of a rock doesn't change by the weather. It doesn't change if it's not made smaller it's going to weigh the same amount. Aerodynamics. You put your hind in in a chair on an airplane, you're betting your life on order. You're saying that what raised that plane two days ago, those same conditions exist, there's an order to it, a predictability to it, and in the same conditions, that airplane is going to be able to make the flight from Joplin to Dallas. And some of you say, well, I don't believe in order. Then never get on a plane. Because you're sitting on a seat in the middle of the sky, and if gravity still exists, you should die. But we believe in predictability. Physics. Dan McGrew and I were talking about building buildings is all based on the premise that there is an order to creation. Where was that order established? By who does those things hold together? If, if gravity left us here today, we'd be a mess. But why has it never left us? Because in the created order, by the creator, there is a physical order to this world. And Paul says that all of that is held together by who Jesus is as creator. Because it was created by a designer and not by an accident. That there's a dependability. That we know certain things have been proven over time all based on it. Science is based on the predictability and order of things observed. And yet some of us have been taught that science negates faith. No, science just actually demonstrates what I believe in. That there's an order and it's held together by Jesus. And my last example for this point, and it's just an overview of the concept, is what did Jesus do to those things that we can't control about nature? He controlled them. Do you remember? What did Jesus do when he was awakened in a boat and there was a massive storm that, that scared experienced fishermen? He stood up and he said, be still. If you pay attention to what's said in the Gospels, not only did the rain stop and the wind stop, but the the language used is that the waters completely calmed instantly. I could give you a five-gallon bucket of water, we could drop a rock in it right now, and we could time how long it would take for those waters in that small sample to calm. Jesus stood up and said, be calm, and it was to a stillness. Somebody had power over created order. It's not you and me, it's not the scientific mind, it's Jesus Christ himself. He holds it all together. And when he wants to change it, he can change it. You and I can't. It's all held in him. So not only is there a physical order to the universality of who Jesus is, but there's a moral order that we know right and wrong, that we have a sense of this. You see, verse 16, For by him all things are created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and in- invisible, Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. Notice this invisible, invisible. Do you believe in darkness? I don't mean lack of light. I mean darkness, sin, evil. I've always wondered, who taught a two-year-old that going into their bedroom when it's dark is scary? Did you teach your children that? Hey, junior, here's five things you should be scared of. Nope, they found them on their own. When a child has fear in a storm, where does that come from? We all, as parents, put on a brave face, don't we? I remember my dad. My dad grew up in Missouri, I grew up in Indiana. Storms would come through South Bend once every 10 years and we would watch the old man because he lived in tornado country. And if Dale sat in his chair acting like it wasn't a big deal, I found out later he's the greatest actor I've ever known in my entire lifetime. (laughs) My dad's scared of a thousand things, but as a kid, I watched The Rock. The Rock wasn't gonna move, we're good. I never once heard my dad say, let's go to the basement. I said to him, did you ever want to? He goes, yeah, sometimes, but I didn't want you all to freak out. So I watched the strength. So where does fear come from? You see, here's what you need to know. If you don't believe that God has created a moral order to this world, then you have to answer me some questions. What taught you to be scared? Why is darkness a problem? Why are we frightened of loud noises out of nowhere? Because we know there's a right and wrong. We know that there's a good way to behave and that there's a poor way to behave. And where did that come from? It's built within us. It's a part of our system. It's part of God's moral order. So God has created the physical world under Jesus and he's created a morality under Jesus that's inherent in all of us. And then we can choose to reject it or not. So Paul says that there's an order and it's all held in him. The author of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter one, verses two and three, says it this way. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son Whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. How does Jesus hold it all together? By his truth. He tells us exactly the way things are, whether we choose to believe it or not. You see, what I want to say this morning, very clearly, is I can show you over and over, philosophers have debated it and come to similar conclusions, there is a power, and there is something holding this all together, they may not want to identify it as Jesus, I'm very comfortable identifying it as Jesus, but the truth is, he is universal king over everything. But it doesn't matter if he's not your king. His power is a threat. Authority is a threat if you don't trust the one in authority. So today I want to move on to King Jesus' personal. Not just universal, but personal. He's a king in which all things are brought about and held together. It's by his authority that this all works. Take Mary, young girl, anywhere between the age of 12 or 18, depending on which scholarship you want to study. But we know that she was unmarried and she was very, very young and she had never been with a man. And God came to her and said, I want you to give birth to my child. And Mary thought it through and she she knew who God was. And so she says this in Luke chapter 1. My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant." I want us to ponder on this a moment. That's not a new verse. There's no explosion of brand new insight for you today. And many of you say, yeah, yeah, I know that verse. Now, I want you to experience that verse because here's what happens for me when I read it now. Mary doesn't just identify that he's God. Notice, she doesn't just say that you're the God of the universe, that you created all things, that you're the ultimate authority, that you're in power. He says, or she says, he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant." She knows he's king of the universe. Now she's realizing he wants to be king of her individual life. You see, she knew who he was. Now she was beginning to understand that he knew who she was too. And doesn't that make a difference? When someone has authority over you, if you know that they love you and care for you and are providing for you, we can take no from people who love us we we can look at our parents in those moments that they say i don't want you to do that i wish my parents would have said to me more and let me explain my parents didn't say a lot of you can't i could have fought that but when they looked at me and said i wouldn't do that if i were you or if i had the same choice i wouldn't do that or my dad would look at me and say well i'm going to ask you not to and he put the choice back on me to submit to his authority or to rebel, it was harder to submit to something I had a voice in. Does it make sense? And here, in this text, Mary could have said no, but she said he wants to invest in me, that he is humble, or he's aware of my humble state. And so she began to understand that God was not only coming to earth, but he was coming to her earth, to her life, to connect it all. Dr. Timothy Keller says, To the degree that you have your life under the lordship of Christ is the degree that your life will be held together. And to the degree that you don't have your life under the lordship or kingship of Jesus, to that degree your life will fall apart. But I have to imagine that some of us feel like our lives are falling apart. It's just spinning out of control and it's got to crash sometime. And we're nervous and your preacher stands up here on a Sunday morning during Christmas season and says, Jesus came as a baby to become king, and that king was already king when he came, and he established a new throne here on earth, and you say, yeah, but I don't feel like anything's going my way. Where's my king now? Who's protecting me? You see, Jesus holding all things together is not about your control. It's about his. And the way that that's best demonstrated is when life is hard. Cancer comes. And the doctors begin to count down days. And we say, who's holding this all together? I don't feel held together. But I have to ask you, can you trust the one who can overcome your cancer, even if it's on the other side of life? Or you lose your job, and you say, I I need to go do something. I need to make this happen. Can you trust the one who says, let me hold it together for you? Let me provide in my perfect way what you need and what you desire. Your child rebels. Or the consequences of your former sinful choices come at you in full force and crush you in the chest and take your breath away and you realize I did this to myself, my world is falling apart, what do I do? I ask you here this morning, is the one who set the cosmos in order, who holds everything together by the truth of his will, can you trust him? Can you trust that he will never leave you nor forsake you? That there is nothing you face that he can't overcome. The challenge of Christmas is not just to accept the baby, but to remember from the moment he was born, he's been king forever. And he's asking us to make him king. So how do we do this? How do we open ourselves up to the personal kingship of Jesus? I'd like to use some of Paul's words this morning. Looking at verses 9 through 13. Verse 9. Paul prays. Remember, this is where we started this morning. His prayer is asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray that in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience. Let's begin at the end. Endurance and patience. Paul realizes that life is going to feel like it's unwound, or it's becoming unwound, but Jesus is the one who's going to hold it together. You and I cannot control the things of this life. We can't control the things of this world. Scott said it this morning very well. When you just look at the, the joy that we have when we realize that we can provide for someone and he wants to provide for us. When a grandson says, Papa, what can I do for you? And you stop and you think, this is interesting now. There's a joy and there's a hope. So how do we do this? How do we hold on when we feel like we're falling apart? First of all, I'd like to just say, become qualified, become qualified, Become qualified. It's really simple. It's a little bit awkward, but let's use Paul's term, verse twelve: "Giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light." Notice that I did not say to you, "Qualify yourself." I said, "Become qualified," and the qualifying is done by the work of Jesus. He's holding it all together by He's entering into the in, He's entering you into His family by His grace. Uh, I was once qualified to win a bike, I did not want the bike, it was pink. My brother Scott thought it was funny, so he registered me for the contest, I won the bike. I was qualified for something I did not want. (laughs) Jesus doesn't do that kind of work to us. He doesn't qualify us to just things to make fun of us or to make us feel awkward or to penalize us. Jesus qualifies us into the inheritance that he receives from his father. It's a good qualification. It's entering us into something that we could never enter ourselves into. It's what Paul says in Ephesians, is we become joint heirs. That everything that God is going to give his first son as a blessing for being an obedient child, he gives to us. He shares it with all of us. He has qualified us. In fact, if you take the New Testament, uh, unlike or just like Mary, you have John the Baptist. And when Jesus comes to his cousin John the Baptist, and No one's sure if they've ever even met. But he knows who he is, and he knows the Holy Spirit has identified Jesus. When Jesus comes to be baptized by John, John says these words in John 1.27. He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am unworthy to tie. Interesting expression. I didn't know this until about a year ago, that uh, Jewish rabbis of Jesus' day would commend the Jews not to require another Jew to wash your feet. That may explain why a couple of times in the Gospels, Jesus goes into a house and nobody would wash his feet. And that passage in John where he begins to wash feet. It's all based on the fact that the rabbi said, don't expect another Hebrew, no matter if they're your servant, to wash your feet. It was that disgusting and degrading of an activity. So when Jesus comes over the hill, John says, no matter what I think of myself, I'm not even worthy to do the least or the most degrading thing I could to this man. I'm not even worthy to touch his filthy feet. Powerful statement. Now, Jesus would say later in Matthew eleven eleven, I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Jesus said, one of the greatest men to ever walk the earth is John the Baptist. And when John met Jesus, he said, I am unworthy. You see, to be qualified means to let Jesus make you worthy. Or if I can play with the language, Jesus worthied you if you'll let him. He's king over all the universe. But he will not make himself king over you until you invite him to be, until you submit, until you open yourself up to that. This is what Paul is saying to us. In fact, in verses 13 and 14, Paul says, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption. If John the Baptist is not worthy, I'm not worthy. Mary said to the angel, I'm not worthy to take on this responsibility. And the angel said, the Lord... Has given this to you, will you accept it? And Mary was not worthy to, but she let him worthy her. So he had now become our worthiness. He has now become our hope. In him I'm qualified, but without him I'm not. If he's not holding my world together, it is gonna come apart. If I'm not under his authority, then I am living out that life that Adam and Eve had. God said, here's all of this I've given you. I'm asking you not to do one thing. I'm gonna determine what's right or wrong. And I'm gonna ask you to let me determine what's right or wrong. Don't eat of that tree. And Adam and Eve said, we don't want you determining our path. We don't want you telling us what's right or wrong. We wanna do whatever we wanna do. And the moment they disobeyed the authority of their creator, the world began to fall apart. And Jesus came to bring it all back together. He's holding it together, all of creation, including our souls. And so because of that, not only are we to become qualified, but if we want to open ourselves to the kingship of Christ, we must become his pleasure. We must become his pleasure. Paul says this way in verse 10, And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way. I love that term. If you read this passage, Paul doesn't mention obedience at all. Paul says, no, no, that you might live in a way that brings him pleasure. Obedience may be an obligation, but pleasure is an opportunity. I got a very succinct, direct email from my father this last week. He sent it to all four of his sons and daughter-in-laws and basically gave us a script for this coming Christmas celebration. And at the end, he said, don't buy your mom or I anything. Okay? Now, the improper grammar, it should have been, don't, bother, or don't buy your mom and me anything, but he wrote, your mom and I. We'll work on that later. But I'm going to disobey my dad not because I'm a good guy but because my dad's not going to tell me not to bring him pleasure he doesn't have that authority in my life I can make my dad happy if I want to make my dad happy, amen and my dad says don't give me anything what? Dale, I don't live in your house anymore I'm going to do what I want to do because I want to bring I want to give you something that you wouldn't get for yourself or something you don't even know exists yet that, that, I'm not buying him technology because there's a pile of that he won't even try it There's something my dad might want. I'm just looking for something that we can say, I love you. And this is the beauty of what Christmas means when we take it out into this world. Not the holiday, but the concept. God gave us what he wanted us to have because he knew what we needed more than we did. And we can bless him by giving him back what he's asked of us and all of the kindness we show to one another, all the joy we show. Scott had no idea about my message this morning, but to have his grandson look at him and say, Papa, what do you want? That's what I'm talking about today. It's the perfect conclusion. Paul says that he's king of kings. He needs nothing from us. But what would we give him? Pleasure. To know that we care enough to say, there's nothing I can get you that you can't get yourself, but I just want to give you my my heart, my life, my trust. I'm going to bow to your authority. The king's gospel. He came for the pleasure of his father, and he came for our pleasure and restoration. If Jesus Christ is king of the universe... Should he not be king of our lives? You see, if you take the scriptures about him, you'll hear these words. Unto you is born this day a savior. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, King. What does God want? To take a knee before him and to live your life For his pleasure. Because when we live for his pleasure, his favor, his blessing, his promises are all ours. We don't do it to get those things. We do it because we've already received them. Authority. He's our king. He's a good king. He's a faithful king. He's a loving king. He's our king. Let's stand together.